Well, hello. Welcome to Disrupt TV. Um, I'm Ray Wong. I'm the founder and CEO of Constellation Research, co-host here on Disrupt TV. Our special guest host is with us. Vala is actually on his way back from Europe. Um, but he will be here next week. So as you know, I, I am not only the CEO of Constellation Research, uh, I get to work with some very exciting clients uh, who are looking at digital transformation, innovation, and of course, uh, we're only as good as our clients. And so that's why we share with these things with you today. I'm here with my special co-host and guest. She's got about six hours on the clock before something changes, but Cindy <laughs> Zhou, our Vice President and Principal Analyst at Constellation Research. She looks at sales and marketing, digital sales, uh, digital marketing, sales effectiveness, all the things that you want to do to actually be a Chief Revenue Officer and more, uh, but more importantly, um, wonderful, wonderful friend, and of course, Analysts. So I'll introduce Cindy and uh, why don't you take it over from here? Hey, thanks so much, Ray. Hi, everyone. Disrupt TV. I'm so excited to co host today. Now, no one can fill in for Vala, the only Vala offshore, but I will do my best. And you can follow Ray on Twitter as we are progressing the show at RWANG0. That's Ray's uh, Twitter handle. And uh, we invite you to tweet along and ask questions as we go. And we have this amazing lineup of guests today, Ray. So who do we have to kick things off today? Well, we start out with Howard Yu, Lego professor of management and innovation at IMD, one of the top business schools in the world, but more importantly, author of Leap, this hot new book that just came out in the bookstores two weeks ago, How to Thrive in a World Where Everything Can Be Copied, right? And Howard can be found at Twitter at Howard H-U. Now, to understand what Howard's background is and what he's up to, I think you've got to check this out. Howard's not only a professor of management and innovation at IMD Business School, he's also the director of IMD's signature advanced management program known as AMP. AMP. He delivers customized training programs for major global corporations. These are worldwide brands from Mars to Merck, Electrolux, Daimler, Nestle, Sanofi, Novartis, and of course, Lego. So he's one of the tough, top uh, professors. He's 40 under 40 business school professors. He was shortlisted on the Thinkers 50 list. I missed that list, but I know you were on it. Congratulations. <laughs> and more importantly, he's also one of the list of 30 management thinkers most likely to shape the future of how organizations are managed and led. So definitely very, very cool. We are excited to have you here. And you can, forward, you can follow Howard at H-O-W-A-R-D-H-Y-U. Howard, welcome to the show. My pleasure. Great to be here. Oh, well, wonderful. Yeah, perfect. Well, Howard, let's just dive right into it. You know, you have your new book called Leap. And tell us, what is Leap? And what does a Leap mean? And how can companies, you know, utilize Leap uh, theory? Yeah, so in my research and in my discussion with senior executive, one of the biggest complaints they have is about product commoditization. They felt whenever they put in a new features, whenever they thought about new services, very quickly, once they put it out in the marketplace, it get copied overnight. And then the reaction is they put on a next round of new features. And it's this like never ending game keeps spinning around. Some dirt cheap version from low cost country suddenly appear in the marketplace and disrupt the whole game. Mm. And so the idea is how can pioneering company can stay on top of competition and the answer is simple. You cannot no longer afford to do the same thing again and again, but you need to fundamentally leap from one knowledge discipline to the next, to the next, 
to reinvent how product and services is delivered. And that ultimately to be the uh, answer for company to stay on top of competition, not just for the next quarter, but over decades and even century. That's crazy. So you're telling me being a first mover is actually no longer an advantage? I got to be a fast follower? Who's going to lead? Yeah, I mean, this is exactly what we found out. It turns out from mobile phone companies to personal computer to wind turbine to solar panel, these are all the industry being dominated by latecomers. In fact, if anything, the first mover advantage is become less and less relevant. Um, it used to be people thought I can protect my IP, I can protect my trade secret, and you can sustain competitive advantage over the long run. Now, it turns out no unique value proposition can stay away from being copied. No blue ocean can stay blue, and they all turn red, ultimately. Right. So it's under this pressure, how can executive reformulate what competitive advantage is? This is the core or the kernel of the book. Well, that's fantastic. So um, when you were talking about you know, longevity for companies and you talked about you know, not uh, being a first mover, it doesn't have the advantage anymore. Can you give us some actual examples, Howard? I think in your book, you mentioned Novartis and, and particularly around the pharmaceutical industry. I, I think our guests would love to learn more about that. Like what specifically did Novartis do? Sure, um, because what, what drove me uh, into this research is if I look in, in Basel, Switzerland, there are lots of pharmaceutical company and Novartis, one of the largest alongside with Roche. Now they have been settled down in uh, Novartis for almost uh, two centuries ago, long time ago. And yet today, unlike many other industries like automotive, Detroit and Rust Belt, Novartis, Basel, the city of Basel, continue to stay very vibrant. Uh, its inhabitants are enjoying the highest living standard in Western Europe. So I decided to go visit Basel to understand the history of pharmaceutical industry. Now, it turns out once upon in time, all of these pharmaceutical firms, they are chemi chemical dye company. They make chemical dye for the textile industry. So Novartis predecessor, Siba Geigi and Sandoz, they were making chemical dye. Now, some of these chemists noticed that these chemicals actually contain medicinal benefit. So they begin to sell painkiller, antipyrin. That's the first world blockbuster in 1903. In fact, in New York Times, New York, they were worried about whether the Swiss and the German company can fulfill the demand from the marketplace. Now, you might remember back in high school, we learned about antibiotics, Alexander Fleming. It turns out after Second World War, all the chemists basically stopped discovery drugs from organic chemistry. They all moved into the study of microbiologies. In fact, all the pharmaceutical company, they send in few workers to collect more juice, to find the next pay dirt to discover the next more potent antibiotics. So it's this leap from organic chemistry into microbiology. Now, if you think about today, everything is about genomics. DNA, genetics, it's all built upon the bioengineering revolution back in the 70s. So the story about pharmaceutical company or the reason why this pioneering company stay in Basel can stay evergreen is not so much just about IP but it's the matter of leaping from organic chemistry to microbiologies to genomics. Compare and contrast car, right? Until most recently with EV and autonomous vehicle, it has always been mechanical engineering. It stays stagnate. 
Little wonder why Toyota and Honda and Kia from South Korea systemically destroyed the leading position of the big three in the United States. Wow. So that's very interesting. So there's a catalyst for innovation that actually occurs with new platforms. And pharma is an actually interesting example to me because when I think about pharma, they've gone through states of growth and stagnation, growth and stagnation. And it wasn't until the biotech firm showed up that we got to the genomics, right? And the people that formed the biotech firms were all startups. Those were startups, right? And what happened is during the consolidation, they ran out of ideas and they finally jumped in and said, fine, we need to buy the biotechs or become biotechs or we'll be disrupted. But a lot of this was basically driven by extreme EBITDA right, a short-term thinking about how to deploy that cash. How do you break that um, and, and think about, you know, I mean, what's the payoff for companies then to innovate if they know that all they can do is let the startups innovate and we'll just buy them, right? Do they just not innovate anymore? Right, uh, absolutely. I think you touch on a very core part of the innovator dilemma because whenever we observe when companies successfully leap from one knowledge to the next, at some point, they would discover it's so hard to render uh, your initiative into financial payback. It's so hard to put a dollar amount to predict what would happen next. I'll give you a very concrete example. When Novartis tried to launch their very first targeted drugs based on genomics, that's Clevic, is a targeted cancer drug that solved a rare form of leukemia. Now, as a rare form of leukemia, of course, the market size is small and the, you know, the engineers were very doubtful. Should we invest so much money into this rare form of targeted drugs? Now, the CEO, Daniel Van Seller, at the time, he was reviewing all the evidence and he thought Clevic is interesting. It's not just because of incremental revenue, but it would represent a fundamental shift of how drug will be discovered in the coming decades. So he told his uh, top team, saying money doesn't matter, we have to go forward. So is this idea that there are initiative and there are innovation that is so hard to render into financial analysis, EBITDA or ROI, that you really require senior management team to pull the trigger when the evidence become clear and really say something along the side like, money doesn't matter, less full steam ahead. It's so hard to find that kind of leadership today. I mean, that is really, really hard. Hard, but I'll, I'll, I'll let Cindy ask the next question. I'm just, I, it's so hard to find that type of leadership. I'm always yeah. amazed when it does happen. So Yeah, and when it does happen, it's, it's like magic. And, you know, Howard, you also talked a lot about, uh, you know, kind of the, 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 what CEOs and companies can learn from, you know, sort of crowd intelligence. And you particularly use WeChat as an example. And, you know, personally speaking, it's just when I cover marketing, uh, and a big you know, thread right now is about mobile marketing. I always use WeChat as an example. And you look at where China is at with WeChat, it is so far ahead of the rest of the market on how it's being used. I mean, you have every major brand, financial institutions, they're transacting even sensitive information uh, on you know, a chat platform, but yet it, it works. So can you tell us a little bit more about your study of WeChat and what companies can learn from, from them? 
Yeah, I thought WeChat is really interesting in the sense that not only they have a massive user base, it's the largest social media platform in China, they have something like 950 million people active user, but it's also how sticky this platform is. Because I was reading some research and, and they were showing Facebook average user using 30 minutes per day and Instagram 20 minutes and Twitter is about one minute. And on WeChat, two minutes. That's not right. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's right, right? <laughs> but then, but then on, on WeChat, two-thirds of its active user would be using something on average three hours per day. And, wow. and the way they, they, they make it so sticky is because on WeChat, not only you use it for messaging, but you watch movie, you hail a cab, you book your restaurant booking, you, you call up your hair salon, you file your tax, um, you do everything. <laughs> you check your bank account, you book your flight ticket, hotel, you name it, they have it. So you cannot live without WeChat to get through uh, your life. And, and when, I, when I was talking with senior executive at WeChat, one thing occurs to me is, is they really have this explicit understanding or acknowledgement, the best killer app will never come from inside. Mm. We would never be able to act as if like Steve Jobs to, to understand what consumer really want in the future. What they done instead is to have this uh, open platform to involve as many as possible the big brand coming in to collaborate with them. Now, to get big brand to collaborate on WeChat, there are something they need to sacrifice, chiefly customer data. Now, here's the interesting thing, right? In the Silicon Valley model, all the social media company, they try to sell you ads. They try to store information. They do data mining to predict right. what I can sell you more. WeChat didn't do that. If anything is a, in, in our terminology, it's a dumb pie, right? In telco industry, we call it dumb pie. You simply connect Starbucks, Walmart, China, you know, different kind of services on one side so that they can plug and play into WeChat as a portal to link with end users. All the calculation and data processing continue to reside on the brand operation, which is why China Merchant Bank, for example, is happy to work with WeChat so that consumer, the millennial, would use WeChat to check their banking account. Now, China right. Merchant Bank know yep. that they would never be able to build an attractive user interface. Um, but this is how WeChat, by letting go storing data, letting go mining customer data, and giving that freedom back to big brand and big company, this is how they become the biggest platform in China. A complete different flip of business model when we compare with the Silicon Valley tech giant. Yeah, I mean, how I'll, uh, wow. I, just a you quick know. comment on what you just mentioned about WeChat too. You're absolutely spot on. It's it's about the data side of it and companies retaining that. But you're absolutely right. I mean, we look at what we deal with here, right, Ray? I mean, just if you have a couple different banks, I mean, how many apps on your phone do you have versus everyone's just transacting on one app? So absolutely, there's a lot of lessons to be learned there. So yeah, over to you, Ray, for. Uh, to continue this fascinating. No, one of my favorite, one of my favorite case studies. This book is great. Like this is like all the great case studies you ever got to study, yeah. put into one fun book. And and one of my favorite ones is Steinway and Yamaha. Like I I'm a Steinway fan, and believe it or not, I bought a Yamaha S6, right? And and it's for exactly this knowledge thing that you're talking about. But let's talk about the war. Set the scene. Tell us where Steinway versus Yamaha coming through and copycatting their way. And now, of course, the Chinese piano manufacturers that have picked up all the brands. I mean, we see that through multiple dimensions. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, I mean, the biggest lesson learned from Stanway and Sun versus Yamaha is this idea that when we talk, when, when I discuss with executive, uh, what's your solution? There's almost this knee-jack reaction when there are low-cost competition coming in. They would say, we're going to move up market. We're going to become the Rolex of our own industry. And what Stanway and Sun showed us, yes, you can make the best piano in the world, but your financial result could be disastrous. And this is exactly what happened to Stanway. No two Stanway sounds the same, and the grand, grand piano is the best in the world. But over the last five decades, the company gone acquired by a private equity firm, gone mm. relisted again and again, changed you know, top management team. And, and at its peak, they were selling something like 6,000 piano per year, and now it's 2,000. They, historically, they own the entire Astoria Stanway village of 400 acres of land, now they were down to a factory complex. Now, people are still passionate about piano and they still make the best piano, but then they were disrupted by Yamaha, right? Yamaha came in after Second World War. They were selling upright piano to satisfy the domestic market, but they automate everything. Unlike Sandway, it's all about hand craftsmanship. Yamaha put in conveyor belt, automatic robotic arm, and so on. Those piano doesn't sound very good but it allows Yamaha to expand their uh, manufacturing volume. They learn more. And by the time in the late 60s, they entering the concert grand segment, they have such a much bigger balance sheet. They have much more resources to throw around, to run marketing campaign. And so Stanway, in many ways, they were trapped in a golden cage. And I thought that is such an important lesson learned for many, many industries that yes, you can move up market, you can try to become Rolls Royce of your own industry. One is whether it's viable. <laughs> Second is what would be the consequence of your financial result over the long run? And it is a cautionary tale. Yeah, for sure. And it's you know, amazing. Right, and if you look at, you know, sort of what's happening right now with advancements in AI, et cetera. What, what are some of your recommendations to companies? And we'd just love to hear your thoughts on, on AI and its potential to change, you know, kind of the, the tech, you know, the, these companies and, and what they're focused on and how you can make them better. Sure. Um, so I, I, I think for executive, one thing they have to be very clear is uh, what kind of world we're in, right? So to understand what are the big seismic shift is affecting the industry so that their strategy can actually get the maximum out of the environment and buffer themselves from the worst. So there are two parts. If I think about manufacturing during a parallel to knowledge work, it's almost exactly the mirror image. In the manufacturing world, you have craftsmanship we talk about, then mass manufacturing, then advanced robotics. In knowledge work, it used to be you know, every decision you need to make by a small team of people, expert in-house. WeChat describes mass decision-making. You outsource innovation to your community. Everyone contribute. And then the last bit, obviously, is AI, is advanced automation, getting the mundane work off, off the, um, of your employee as much as possible. So today, what we see is, of course, there are many, many of these expert knowledge systems that can diagnose uh, cancer, for example, by IBM, uh, voice recognition by Alexa, and even doing very conversational um, uh, conversation, verbal conversation like Google Duplex. But my, 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 my hypothesis is the following. 
every time when there is narrow job getting automated, a more general job would come forth. Mm -hmm. So historically, if you're thinking about telephone, turn around the century. At AT&T, you have people doing human switchboard, the telephone operator. That get automated rather quickly. And there's a new class of job come out, and that's office receptionist. They need to take messages. They need to route messages across the offices. They, they take note of, of visitors and so on. That's a much more general purpose job. And if you're looking at the employment, in fact, what the disappear as manual operator, in terms of number of new jobs in uh, office receptionists, that's way more than what got disappeared. So in many ways, if you're thinking about today, a lot of people arguing we, we're going to move into a jobless future. I think the narrative actually got it wrong. A lot of the mundane job, if our job is only doing Excel spreadsheet and glorify messenger and human router, yes, that's going to disappear. But with that, the kind of more general problem solving job would come forth. For example, a lot of company already embrace design thinking, understanding money, yep. looking at it. Last episode, you have talked with someone, design thinkers, and those require human empathy, human network, and a lot of understanding of meanings. These are not the type of work that a robot can replace because it requires different domain of knowledge. AI right now is very good in deep knowledge in one single domain. Cross-domain and sense-making is still a human, uh, exp uh, humans still contain an advantage. So I would hypothesize going forward, what we see is two types of organization. Leading company would automate as much as possible by machine. As a result, the employees can deploy their time to do more creative work. And consequently, you're going to see productivity per employee of these companies would take off. Those who couldn't stay on the frontier would see their productivity plummet. And we already have early data to support such hypotheses. Wow. wow. We are talking with Howard Yu with riveting case studies of successful leaps and tragic fails. And Howard is the professor of management and innovation, the Lego professor of management innovation at IMD. His new book, Leap, can be found on Amazon and anywhere where books are sold. You can follow him at Howard H.Y.U. Check him out. Thanks a lot, Howard, for being on the show. I'm going to talk to you later about catching up with us at our conference. Thank you so much. So Thank you, Howard. You're phenomenal. Thank you so much. My great pleasure. <laughs> wow. I want to go to business school with these kind of case studies. That's pretty I, awesome. So. I'm telling you, Ray, it, it's listening to him. It's just like what I'm doing with my MBA program right now. I, it was so exciting and I loved hearing his, uh, his point of view on things like WeChat. That was one angle I did not know. So that was a new learning for me too. It's fantastic. So, wow. We, we've got some heavy hitter, great guests today. So uh, we got our next guest, Ray, who is Kirsten Stewart, who is president and CRO of Tribal Scale. So we are so excited to have you, Kirsten. And um, just to give a little bit of background on uh, Kirsten, she is a top-tier business and media executive responsible for Tribal Scale's continued growth and international expansion. Uh, and also, she leads the Tribal Scale's operations, revenue, sales strategies, Totally up my alley on the sales uh, effectiveness research side, Kirsten. Uh, and uh, we're so excited to have you on the show today. Learn more about you Thank and you. Tribal Scale. 
Thank you. I'm excited to be here. And that's a long list of things I do. But just to be clear, I've only been doing them since January. So there's not a lot that I can take credit for. But uh, things are on a real uh, rocket ship path here. And it's been already an exciting ride. So uh, it's been a good first few months. Fantastic. Well, well, hey, welcome to the show. And we've been talking about disruption and innovation. And one of the things Tribal Scale has been known for has been really good at trend spotting. Um, so what does disruption and innovation mean for you and the company? Well, I think right now what attracted me to coming to Tribal Scale was that they're, this, they're in this unique position where they actually challenge big companies to disrupt themselves. Like the idea being that we are in this world of infinite change. So we just heard from Howard around how fast things, the, the pace is going. And we, I think we're, we feel like we're an important part of the ecosystem to help drive big business to keep ahead of the change. And by disrupting themselves, it gets them prepared for what that change is coming before they get disrupted. So, you know, innovation is not just about, you know, ticking off boxes and making sure that you have uh, an, a, a certain kind of technology or some kind of advantage because of some investment that you've made. It's about a holistic approach of understanding the place you are in business and the place you are in your market or in the world even and understanding that to keep ahead of it and to keep in advance of, of how your clients or your customers might be acting or thinking it's a you're in a constant state of improvement innovation isn't a box to check off or a department to, to fire up it's a mindset that has to be adopted by your entire organization if you're going to keep it ahead that is so true. And, you know, in particular from what you're seeing, Kirsten, what are some of the areas or industries do you see at this moment that are like ripe for disruption? Well, it's interesting because I came from the media industry and, you know, we've seen consistent disruption, you know, it started in the music area, I think most, uh, most kind of obviously than anywhere else, then it moved over to TV, print, you know, it's media has been, I, I've been living in the world of disruption for quite a few years and I've seen the challenges of people who don't see that it's coming and perhaps even put blinders on and deny that it's there. Uh, so you know, the, I think we are currently in a state where everything is ripe for disruption and the people who are going to be finding it most painful are those who don't embrace it and see that it's going to fundamentally change how they work with their clients and work with the public. Because I think today everyone's expecting a seamless, frictionless relationship with whomever they're working with or dealing with, whether they're purchasing something, whether they're, you know, whether they're going to uh, commuting in the day, whether, you know, people's daily lives, they're expecting a certain level of ease and they think that technology and innovation is going to solve that for them. Those companies that aren't there for, for them and for the public are not going to keep ahead. So your disruption, I think, is happening systematically everywhere. Uh, and those companies that aren't ready for the fact that they're just going to be a part of this and they cannot necessarily, just because of size or strength or market share, they're not going to be able to hold this off. And it really is a matter of diving deeply into it and appreciating that everyone is kind of starting from scratch. Yeah, absolutely. And just to quickly follow up on that, no. it's uh, we just recently you know, saw yesterday, right? Amazon announces that Prime Wardrobe, they're going to have that go uh, on the massive scale. And you think about, okay, all these services like Stitch Fix, you know, even Nordstrom, a, a brick and mortar has Trunk Club. 
uh, and how that's kind of changing with Amazon coming in, in particular with uh, Whole Foods too. So absolutely, it's the it's that whole Amazon effect of disruption as well. I find really yeah, and disruptors get disrupted, right? Like I think right. we're, we're in a really space. I came from Twitter. Uh, you know, Twitter was the disruptor to media at one point, but then now Twitter gets disrupted. And, you know, Uber was a disruptor, and now it's getting disrupted. And so I think, you know, we're seeing pace of business and, and adoption and change you know, increasing at such a fast pace that people are expecting more and better all the time that you cannot figure that because you were once the disruptor that you're you kind of you've got it made you actually have to keep reinventing yourself at the same time well you know let's let's talk about that actually you you've lived that you lived that whole thing with different career moves across the board right from being at cbc to twitter to diply to here so how did you know when to make that transition when you knew that that disruption and that curve had just crossed and then you realize that, okay, it's time to jump into the next new thing and uh, apply the lessons learned from the, from the previous industries and go forward. I think it's really easy to get caught up in your day to day and think about the challenges that are right in front of you and not lift your head up enough to look around at the market or the industry and see what's happening, what, what change is happening. And, and it, you know, I think like Ford famously said, like if I keep asking the people what they would have wanted, they would have just wanted a better horse and buggy. Uh, like it's a combination of being able to be tapped into who your audience is or who your clients are or what's going out there in the marketplace but also getting a sense of where you see the the, 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 the the tide moving. Like it's a it's a top down, bottom up kind of approach where you have to keep your head up enough to know how difficult it is or how, what the challenges are of changing an industry or changing a business to meet the demands that people don't even know that they have yet. Uh, and so for me, the move from media was that sense where I could see um, the music space in particular where you know, people were wanting a direct experience with content that they were now getting enabled by technology. Suddenly, you know, it be, the, the, the one-way communication of, of media disappears when technology allows for, you know, multi-dimensional conversations to happen and for co uh, content consumption and content creation has suddenly changed when you don't need a whole camera set to be able to, 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 to run a newscast, you can actually do it off a smartphone. So technology was the driver of change, but people and how they approached it and how they embraced it and wanted to be able to be a part of it and wanted to get closer to content, that to me really shifted how media was gonna have to behave, whether it was television, whether it was um, uh, you know, in, in, in the news space and print, like there is that sense now that people expect that they get what they want when they want to whenever they can, whenever they can, and they want it for free on top of it all. So you're busting business models at the same time. <laughs> and they want so, it free. You know, I and think, they want it free. <laughs> yeah, everything and everything all at once and everything for free. And and it better be good quality. Like it, as much as we've kind of changed the sense of what you know what people accept in terms of quality, people still yeah. want good quality. Like people still want things that speak to them and tell a good story. And, and so we have a lot of demands on an industry that um, is, is having a hard time keeping up, but there's huge opportunity in that too like i think the, the 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 those that keep their head down and hope that things don't change are also missing out on the opportunity of changing themselves and actually um, being able to figure out different ways to create content now that we have this technology different ways to be able to distribute it to experience it 
uh, that's fun. And so when I made the move from CBC to Twitter, it was really about that. I saw what Twitter was doing in the sense of being able to reach right into a person and their power of their smartphone and their feelings in the moment and not be this one way broadcaster, which was going to be, you know, really treating everybody very similarly, but instead understanding the, what people's needs were in the moment and, and actually um, providing them content that was really tailored for them. Like that's the promise of something like a, a, a Twitter or a Facebook or in that space. And so that was exciting to me that yep. you know, here I was sitting in a TV world where my report card was a Nielsen report every morning telling me women 18 to 35 maybe like this or didn't like that. I can actually find out through you know the technology that Twitter uses and other social media platforms, what are people wanting in the moment and what's their reaction to it? What's the sense of it? What's the, so to me, that motivational factor was so fascinating and I don't want just content for content's sake. I wanted to appeal to someone. How do I tap into that? So Twitter really gave that promise to me. I wanted to do better for my audience and doing better for my audience meant using technology to get there. Moving from that space to the space I'm in now even deeper into tech, again, it's just that sense that everybody is a technology business. We think, I think before that technology was this um, add-on or nice to have, or it would enable some things, but get in the way of others. It's completely transformed how we work and how we, and, and how we live. And I think, you know, technology is being the enabler as opposed to something that's a, that's a mountain to climb. I think we are now approaching it as, as an opportunity in every business understands that they are in the technology business now. Absolutely. And, you know, Kirsten, it's, it's like you being the head of so many, you know, kind of Canadian entertainment media companies, you know, we just talked about CBC and Twitter Canada. Do you see any differences on, you know, sort of the Canadian media market and how that differs from other countries? Or do you see of any, you know, kind of pro cons and, and how do you think that the, the Canadian market compares? I think it, you know, it's been interesting because living in the Canadian space and living internationally too, because before I was in deeply into the broadcast side, I was in distribution, so I was selling content internationally. So I got a good sense of where the world is and where Canada is within that world and particularly running the national broadcaster. Like you get a really, you get a really uh, intimate sense of what people expect of you. There's a very much, you know, we are as a, as a nation sitting next to the largest neighbor you can possibly have in the United States. And it's a, it's a, it's a big neighbor to be dealing with culturally, uh, influentially, like it's, it's, it's kind of the elephant in the room, so to speak, but it's a, it's a huge advantage, but it's also a huge challenge to cultivate your own culture next to such a huge influential neighbor. So there were always things put into place from the beginning of like the evolution of television to make sure that the Canadian voices were heard and certain protections were put in there. And so that's whether it's for music, you know, the, we had something called the CRTC, which actually regulates how much Canadian content is seen, heard, enjoyed, uh, created. Uh, that system was put in place to make sure that Canadian voices weren't lost. Well, suddenly you're here in the world where YouTube and like the yeah. biggest stars on YouTube right now are like, have been Lily Singh, who's the biggest music discovery, um, Justin Bieber. Nope, right. Like it's, you know, we have a lot of influence now that you wonder if the protectionisms are needed in the same way. And so there's this push pull in within the industry here in Canada to try to think about how do they evolve and how do they mature in the space where the, 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 the rules changed and, but so did the opportunities. And so I think, you know, we're, we're learning that we have in that protected space and time 
developed a whole lot of skills that are really um, above, like, uh, we're, we're punching way above our weight when it comes to our, our skill set and, and how we create content. It's now that the kind of barriers are down, the physical barriers as well as the kind of restrictions of, of, of how we work in content, now that that's all down, how is, how is Canada going to play in the international market when it doesn't just have to play to itself? And there's, I think, huge opportunity in that. And we have a lot of good quality people here and, and that's born in their success when they, they don't just have to leave here anymore. You've got Drake, who's very proudly sitting on the top of the CN Tower, um, yeah. you know, shouting out the fact that he's a Torontonian and, and <laughs> stays here. So it's no longer the same kind of, of um, path to success as it used to be. You don't have to stay within the country, but you also don't have to leave it. So it's a, we're in an interesting spot right now as Canadians and content creators. You know, you were one of the uh, pioneers that built out the Canadian media market. Uh, you talk about a lot of things from digital change uh, to modern leaders to Our Turn, which is, which is your book. Um, let's start there. Let's talk a little bit about that. Over the course of your career, have you noticed any real progress for women when it comes to workplace culture? I mean, prior to the, all this Me Too and after all this Me Too, have things changed? I think what's changed probably is the dialogue now. I think that it can't be ignored and that it is part of the, it is part of the mainstream conversation around what this all means. Um, I wish I had seen numbers change more significantly to the positive around how we, you know, reflect diversity, not just in gender, but in all, all sorts of forms, because we are all learning and we've all, it's been proven. I don't think we have to prove anymore that diverse perspectives at the table make for a better business. Like it's, it's, we don't have to prove that anymore more but yet we have to live it a bit more because we don't we're not seeing that reflected in the numbers of the people who are at business and and who are in leadership necessarily so i think you know the opportunity to write our turn was really about my story where um you know i I'm not necessarily someone born to a certain family. I don't have a certain advantage. I have certain advantages because of my, my color for sure, but not necessarily the kind of advantages that a number of people who run um, big networks have had. Uh, and so I wanted to talk about how, you know, what was my experience in getting here and what were the skills that I drew on that are actually probably more valuable than we then we evaluate for ourselves. So um, it was about being yourself. It was a, it was a, reaction a bit to lean in where I thought lean in was a bit of a call to action very needed to remind us to put make sure that our voices are being heard but it was also a bit of a call to action to speak like somebody else speak like a man um, where I think that we actually have you know we have things to say ourselves and we don't say them in our own way which are actually quite powerful and I and I think businesses have seen uh, the change in technology, but also the change in generations and what's expected of work-life relationships in this new generation. We've seen, I think, a push to understanding that leadership needs to look different than it did in the past. And those small signs that we see, whether it's women in stilettos or men in hoodies running companies are all good early starting signs. We have a lot of work to do to make sure that it's, it's a muscle memory that is embedded in every business that we are in, that it's, we should be looking for the most talented, widespread people that we can to fill these roles, or else we're just gonna keep ourselves in a homogenized view and we will not, we will not get the advantage of the fantastic people that are out there in terms of a, a pool of talent and tap into them. So um, it's not really just about gender, it was about, about, about viewpoints from all over, but I can only speak from my viewpoint being a woman, uh, but I, I know in the conversations I've had since writing the book, people do relate to it in a way that it's about leadership that's been unrecognized. 
um, and not tapped into and how today businesses actually need to tap into those talents that they had in the past. A guy in a three-piece suit leading um, from the corner office top down isn't going to cut it anymore. So how do businesses adjust to that need and change, but by tapping into the right talent pool and the talent pool doesn't look like it used to look like 20 years ago. Yeah, absolutely. And Kirsten, it's, um, you're speaking to a subject that's really near and dear to my heart too. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm very fortunate to be a analyst at Constellation and, you know, one of very few female analysts, quite frankly. And before, you know, joining Constellation, I was a global head of marketing and sales ops for, you know, different companies from startups and I worked at IBM, et cetera. And one of the things that I always found was that, um, you know, I, I'm typically one of the only women, if not the only woman at the table, uh, or, you know, the only minority at the table. So it's sort of the two prong uh, approach. And I never re really used to think much about Jen. I just did what I needed to do. But yeah. then I realized uh, doing speaking engagements, et cetera, how a lot of young women, they, they look to, you know, female executives like you look at people like me and they can see a path for themselves. And that's what I'm really passionate about is mentoring those young women. And I'd just love to kind of get your take on it. Like what, what would be some advice that you would give a young woman right now, maybe just graduated from college and looking at a career in tech? What, what advice would you give them? I think you're very right too, like that idea that you can't be what you can't see. Um, and I think people like ourselves who sit in these roles know how important it is. It's you know not something you necessarily feel like you want to take on because you're busy doing your you're you're busy doing what you should be doing in terms of work. But the fact that you're representing something beyond yourself is actually we we have to take that on. I think as a, as not just an obligation but as a, a point of honor and and make sure that we're lending out a hand to let, bring others up with us because it's lonely, isn't it? Like being the only woman at the panel, being the only woman at the whatever, you're lonely ultimately. And I think the more of us are that are around, the better for everybody. And uh, as I speak, you know, I I'm very kind of emboldened and and heart and I feel very heartened by conversations I have with younger generations because they're. You know, and then you're a little afraid for them too, because there is the sense that they don't know what they're going to be hitting when they get there, um, because there is all that belief that um, a lot of what we face every day has been fixed or is being addressed, and it isn't until you actually hit the workforce that you start to see some of the challenges ahead of you. And if we can just make sure that we preserve some of that optimism around, I can do it, and I can do anything. That, that coupled with resilience when you hit the wall or you hit obstacles that are in your way, I think is a, is a great combination. You need the optimism and the hope that things will change and things will get better. And then you need the resilience to push through them when they don't and they don't go in the way that you expect them to. And, and a self-worth that is very difficult to cultivate when you're young sometimes. But I do see, I think in a lot of the generations coming up, they do have a self-confidence that maybe some of us didn't have when we were mm -hmm. first starting out. I want them to preserve that build on that, not see it as ego, but see it, see it as, as opportunity because it's something that will drive them through. Um, without that hope, without that resilience, I think we get defeated very quickly and change will only happen if it happens from both ends, from both the top and from bottom. And I think um, it's, it's, going to take, it's going to take a lot of work on behalf of that generation coming in and our support of them as they try to reach out and beyond uh, to kind of come to the middle so that we see more effective change because it's not moving fast enough. We talk about things like move the dial and other areas that we're also 
really big supporters of a tribal scale. And, you know, we're seeing how hard it is to move those numbers. Yeah. Uh, and it's, it, it's going to take beyond ticking off a box and making sure that someone like you sitting at a table, someone like me sitting at a table, we need many more people like us sitting at tables um, and, and not resting until that happens. And it's I, my big concern as I look forward and I see some of the challenges that are happening, particularly in the States with a bit of retrenchment around how, you know, what is valuable in business and what, what do people worry about and what do people focus on? Um, the more that people focus on the bottom line, I think sometimes they lose the bigger, the bigger picture of how much benefit they can actually get from a diverse workforce to their bottom line. So that constant reminder and moving that, muscle uh, and making sure that we build it every day is going to be really important. So my advice to young people coming in is preserve your optimism and don't get discouraged. Know your worth, know, know your worth and speak to it and make sure that you find the right alliances, female, male, otherwise within a business that can actually support you as you move on. So confidence, not arrogance, role models, mentors from top down, top down, having the right uh, environment, building an ecosystem and a network. We're here with Kirsten Stewart, president and CEO at Tribal Scale and Tribal Scale Ventures Stewart Studios. She is talking about technology, innovation, women in STEM and really media and communications. Definitely check out her book and uh, of course, follow her on Twitter. Of course, right? At Kirsten Stewart, K-I-R-S-T-I-N-E. S-T-E-W-A-R-T, and our, our, our lone Canadian on our team, Alan Lepofsky, says hi. So anyways, uh, very, very good. Hey, thanks for being on the show. Hope Thank to catch up so with you in Toronto soon. So take care. Thanks for the conversation. I appreciate it. Thank you. All right. Back-to-back -back innovation, strategy, yes. some very interesting words of advice. Uh, we're doing great. And then we got our cleanup here at our, our favorite our favorite, favorite guest, Larry Dingman, is back on the show. Um, we've got a lot of favorites, but you know, Larry knows we love him. Larry yeah. is the editor-in-chief of ZDNet and Smart Planet, <laughs> as well as editor-director of ZDNet's sister site, Tech Republic. He was most recently executive editor of news and blogs at ZDNet. Prior to that, he was executive news editor of eWeek and news editor at Baseline. He also served as the East Coast news editor and finance editor at CNETnews.com. But Larry is more noted for his interesting wit, his awesome analysis, and more importantly, uh, the fact that he's just actually tells it like it is. So let's look at the rundown on stories. And you can follow Larry at L-D-I-G-A-G-N-A-N. Let's talk about what was going on this week. Uh, what, you, what do you want to start with? What's hot for you? Uh, I, I think we got to talk about the Teradata SAP thing. Um, earlier this week, Teradata sued SAP and they basically said HANA was basically ripped off from them. So that, that's, you know, nice headline, get your attention. And as you go through the um, complaint in more detail, you know, it goes into like trade secrets being stolen, IP being lifted. And then, and then you get to a point where they say, I think the thing that got Teradata most wound up is this idea that SAP was bas is basically blocking HANA from connecting to their data warehousing gear. Um, and that gets into a whole like, you know, does the enterprise, does the customer really own their data? And can these vendors effectively hold it hostage? Um, SAP didn't really have a comment on it. Their comment was, we normally don't comment on lawsuits and we got to read the complaint a lot more. Um, Wait, Larry, you know, while you're, while you're asking around about mode? what was that? But, but, 
but hey, Larry, while you're in green screen mode, if you can turn on your video, that would be awesome. Yeah. Uh, we're kind of hearing oh, you. you. We're not just catching the full effect. Uh, okay. Wait, uh, hey, there's Larry. Yeah, there you are. <laughs> we really missed that whole thing. Go figure. No, we heard you. We just wanted oh, to see you. Oh, we heard you. Too. We heard oh, you. okay. Well, now you see my green screen, which is, um, you know, we use it for ZDNet videos all the time. And you can just insert your own background and do whatever the hell you want at this point. Um, <laughs> It was just too big. It was too big to move. So here it is. Um, so as I was saying, as I was totally blacked out and didn't know it, um, you know, the SAP Teradata thing, it really gets back to that indirect access. It gets back mm -hmm. to data sharing. And, you know, my hunch is this is going to be probably an ugly lawsuit. Um, but I also think it touches on a bigger issue in enterprise software. Um, it's also going to touch on stuff in the cloud. Um, I just think as these companies get bigger and they hold more of their data, we're likely to see shenanigans with everything from APIs to systems talking to each other. Um, and if I'm really to play this out, I think GDPR will probably use, be used as an excuse to some way to sort of limit your access to your own data. Um, and, and I just, I can see this, you know, so, so whatever happens with Teradata and SAP, it's an interesting lawsuit. It's interesting headlines. But the thing that fascinates me the most is a sort of enterprise data sharing and, and what protections you really have. Because, um, you know, I mean, let's face it, the more you do lock in with cloud, the more you do lock in with HANA or any enterprise software vendor, the more data resides in their system. Right. So that ultimately gives the vendor more power. So it may not be the old software. It may be more about your your enterprise data lock-in, which mm -hmm. gets gets very interesting over time if you, you know, sort of do some game theory and play this out. You know, it, it is actually very interesting because in the cloud, what actually happens is you don't own the software, right? So it's your data, but if the gateway is like the software, it's kind of like not having an easement to your lock. Like someone's saying, hey, I'm going to block your driveway just because you don't own that anymore, right? You rented the driveway and we're not right. going to give you access to your house. Sorry about that. So, so it just gets, it gets interesting. And I don't think this is the first we will hear of this. Um, I just, I just think, I, I don't think we've heard about it as much because everybody's playing nice because the economy has been good. Mm -hmm. Um, Business is good. IT spending is good. Companies are doing all this digital transformation. I mean, people are spending money all over the place. Um, once that slows down, I think, yeah, I think tech vendors are going to be much more about, you know, clo close the window, keep some people out and keep customers in. Um, and, you know, maybe they'll play over the next two years. But, but it, it is kind of interesting that, you know, just if you look at all the focus on personal data protection, you know, it's sort of that business data protection is not quite baked yet. So. Yeah. Wow. We're going to need a change.org petition, Larry. We got to go out and like rally the customers to say, we want a data detente. Yeah. I'll, I'll leave that to you guys. I don't, I don't, really, I don't really do the activism thing. <laughs> well, you know, Larry, I'll, I'll just, I'll I write share about it. it. I don't do it. <laughs> I'll share this little story. You know, we, we've been doing our rounds at the different tech conferences and, um, the vendor and the customer shall remain nameless to protect the innocent. But uh, I was having a great conversation with a CIO and, and, you know, I was like, Oh, what brought you to the event? And, you know, it was one of those kind of like luncheons where they get the analysts and the customers together and the customer, you know, first of well, you know, I'm looking at, you know, the, this uh, particular software solution from this company. And later on, you know, after we got to know each other a little bit better, it's like, okay, 
I'm really here because I'm forced into it. Uh, they basically sent me a demand letter about this indirect access situation. And, you know, basically it's like, but if you buy this software, this cloud software that we're trying to push, then we'll make everything go away. It was just honestly left a very bad taste in my mouth about the vendor. And, uh, you know, I, I just feel like we're going to see more of those situations more and more. Was the, was the conference in Orlando by any chance? And <laughs> I'm not going to say. <laughs> Let's just say the SAP was it humid down there by any chance. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I just I just think this is going to be an interesting issue, right? Because the customer owns their data, but everything that everything their data courses through, they don't necessarily own. They kind of lease and subscribe to. So it's it's going to be fascinating to watch. But I think we're going to hear a lot more of this. Yeah, absolutely. So what about this next headline about voice interfaces and Oracle? You know, tell us a little bit about that. Well, okay, so Oracle did their earnings, you know, it's it's the usual it's the usual script. I mean, I love I love Larry Elson. He is like the last he's like the last real tech CEO cowboy. Like he just doesn't care. So, you know, the usual script is workday sucks, SAP sucks, uh, <laughs> AWS sucks. It, it's all so so then you go down you know, you go, yeah yeah we, <laughs> we basically took every customer they have we we we're just cloud awesome whatever um cloud some however you want to put it so <laughs> so they go through this thing and, and then they get to the part where they start talking about they're setting up all their apps erp hcm all that good stuff to basically be engineered for voice interfaces right and then, and then he says, his example was, well, we, we showed off this thing where you could book like travel via Alexa. And I just thought it was funny because, you know, Ellison's a little, he's a little obsessed with AWS. Like, like yeah. it's almost, it's almost to those SAP levels that he used to have back in the day. Um, and, and I'm just like, all right, so you're talking about voice enablement and all this stuff. And then, and then the only example you could have was like an Alexa example, which I get because Alexa for business and, you know, we're going to be talking to Alexa all day. Thank God I don't have my dot hooked up because it would be Is it laughing? Is it laughing in the background? <laughs> yeah, well, uh, yeah, well, luckily I don't plug it in for these reasons because if you mention <laughs> Alexa while you're doing video, it'll say something. Um, but but generally speaking, you're like okay, so he's basically he's basically giving Alexa for business like a, a, a prop, right? Because you know we're all going to be talking to Alexa all day, whether it's home or work. Um, but I think the overall theme is that you know voice is going to be the new UI that basically taps into your enterprise data and your enterprise apps, and you know it's just kind of fascinating because I think they're architecting these things so you can sort of bring your own voice interface. Um, so today it's obviously Alexa, maybe it's Google Assistant, maybe it's Cortana, I doubt it, but could be. Oh, now Cortana's asking me stuff. Um, I forgot to turn it off. So, so yeah. Yeah, well, it just popped up. It's like, I'm listening because it's just begging for me to talk to it because I never do. Um, well, it's lonely. No one talks to Cortana. It is lonely. It's like a friend you haven't talked to for a decade and you know, it's like solitary confinement. And then you're like, oh, Cortana pop up there's a screen um, so, so yeah so clippy so, shows up it's just kind of interesting because so, i haven't heard like oracle's talking to that um have you know i haven't really heard salesforce or sap or workday I've, i haven't heard the other ones be so upfront about you know their bet that voice interfaces are going to be the next big thing um which 
you know, could be cool because it gets you out of the crappy interfaces they have now. So for enterprise software, a voice UI might be a great ticket out. Um, so we'll see where that goes. I mean, it's probably gonna play out over years, but I just thought it was pretty interesting. Yeah, for sure. I, I'll just follow. Why well, laugh? I mean, the move yeah. to open offices, I mean, I was going to laugh. The move to open offices and everybody yelling at the same time to their voice assistants. It's going to be hell at work. I mean, I'm, gonna, I'm, just gonna, I'm like, dude, shut up. I'm trying to think. I, I absolutely can't stand the open floor plan. <laughs> I mean, even at Apple, right? Apple builds this awesome building, beautiful specs, Italian doorknobs, right? And it's open. And the engineers are kind of like, hey, screw it. I'm not going there. Build us a different building. They want their cubes. This is totally crazy. And we can't chart the open floor plan stuff, but in, in a few years from now, I'm pretty sure that productivity is going to go down. I'm also pretty sure they're going to see a spike in HR incident and investigations just because of open floor plans. Like, I just think the new normal is just a bunch of people getting pissed off at each other. Like all the happy, happy team stuff that we, we have going on, <laughs> collaboration, whatever. I mean, there's some benefit to that, I'm sure. But at the end of the day, I think we're just, we're just rats in a cage all annoying the hell out of each other. That's the open floor plan. Thanks. It's okay. Road rage will be up, but we have autonomous vehicles, so we can't do anything about that. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay, let's talk about Google's closed AI model. Um, I mean, look, we had five rules for AI ethics, and the first one was transparency. And Google's like, eh, we don't want to do that. Like, it's transparent. You can look at the algos. It's explainable. You know why you have biases. And yeah, if you want the bias, take the bias. If you didn't know about it, hey, maybe you're going to do something about it. It's reversible. So you can actually change something when it's broken. And more importantly, it's coachable and trainable over time. Right? And then the last piece, it's human-led. You start with a human, end with a human, so the robots don't kill us in our sleep. Right? right. So, so here comes Google, and they say, hey, look, we got to close the AI model. Screw transparency on the algos. Is that what's going on? I, I think there's part of that. I, I mean, I think there's a few things going on. One is if you, if you go back to like the old media back in the day where it was like, you know, the print advertising, the TV advertising, there, there was a saying that mystery is margin, right? So if, if Google is completely transparent, you kind of know what it all looks like, right? And, and it's not just Google. It's, I mean, let's face it, Einstein. You go down the list of every, you know, named AI, right? They all got fun names. Um, they're all Sensei. selling you a black box, right? They're all selling you a brain. And it's kind of hard to kick the tires on it, right? So I think that's part of it, right? Part of it is clearly that mystery is margin, right? If, if you're not showing if you're not like you might show your AI algorithms to like somebody under NDA or whatever like when you're about to make a big purchase but generally speaking I don't think they want that stuff out there and part of that is just IP protection it's you make more money probably um, and the other and the other moving part here it's really about covering your ass right because <laughs> you look you look around what's going on right now Every cloud vendor, oh my God, you sold to the government, you're evil, facial recognition, we got to stop it. Like every, every, my guess is every customer is going to be hashtag activism at some point. And, you know, I kind of wrote, I wrote this thing this week with uh, Zach Whitaker, you know, he took the, the squishy part, I took the capitalist pig part. But, but generally speaking, <laughs> I, I just think there's this Pandora's box, right, where, they don't, no company wants to get into this thing where, 
well, your AI was used for something we disagree with, right? Yeah. Whether it's, so especially when it involves the US government, right? So like, would we all be screaming if, you know, some facial recognition technology was sold to China? Maybe not, but we get pretty pissed off if it's yeah. done here. Mm -hmm. So I just, I just think, I don't know if they really want to be that transparent. Like, I, I don't know if I'd even recommend them being transparent, right? Because maybe somebody reverses engineers that AI code and then they wind up using it for some nefarious thing. And then, you know, so it just get, I think a lot of this is sort of CYA. So, I mean, I think the, you know, the activism and, and all the like, you know, employees quitting, if you have this, if this person remains a customer, which by the way, I haven't seen that play out just yet. Um, but they don't want to walk away from the stock. <laughs> well, that's just it. I mean, some of this rings a lot like Occupy Wall Street. Remember that? Like, yeah. I don't know what happened. It was, it was a big party. Everybody smoked weed and nobody went to work and they showed up in, with their Starbucks stuff. Um, but, but it, it was sort of, it has that kind of feel, right? So I don't know if you want to be crazy transparent right now about AI because you don't know what happened. If the more transparent you are, the more likely it could be used for something you don't necessarily agree with. Um, so I just, I just think there's a lot of moving parts here. I mean, part of it's business, but there's a lot of it that's, you know, kind of just being cautious. Like I don't, and that's where it gets interesting with AI. Cause I don't know, I don't know, say you open source these really cool algorithms and then I don't know, they're used in Russia for something or they're used against us or they're used for some, you know, the tech, once the technology is out, I mean, we're trying to put genes well, most, in the model, and it's really tough. I would say most of the algorithms have been out there, and I think they've mostly been published. A lot of them were built in the 80s, and, and I think like they never had the compute power to test it out. Um, right. So it's, it's going to be an open issue and something that we should be watching for some time. But well, hey, Larry, thanks for being on the show. Oh, so uh, we're at time and sadly, so quickly, uh, so we didn't get a chance to do the halftime report on what's going on in enterprise software. But before we do that, Larry, thanks for being on the show. You can follow Larry at L-D-I-G-N-A-N. Cindy, do you have an announcement for us? Oh my gosh, I, I do. But first of all, Larry, I always love listening to you. So I, we, uh, we need to have you on for longer next time. You're like a Hall of Famer for us. Um, and yes, I do have an announcement. Thanks, Ray. Uh, so after you know, two years of being with Constellation, and uh, I, am, uh, I, I absolutely enjoyed my time being an analyst, and I love working for the company and for Ray, uh, but I am uh, actually changing roles very soon. I'm, I've actually joined a company called Level Access as their new chief marketing officer. And Level Access is in the digital accessibility space. So think about your websites, all your web properties, digital properties, and how to make it accessible to people with disabilities, the aging population, et cetera. It's a great company with a great mission. And I'm really super excited to, uh, to lead the marketing charge and go back into the practitioner world but at the same time, I will stay on as a Constellation Orbits member. And so, Ray, I look forward to that next chapter with you in Constellation. Well, hey, no problem. I just thank you so much for being with us for these two years. You've been awesome. Done great work. That. You can take that, put it back into a CMO job. And uh, you're more than welcome back anytime. So thanks for being <laughs> on the show. Thanks. And thanks for being our co-host. We'll have you on as co-host from time to time. So.
So next week's guest, episode 111, we're going government, public sector. We've got Andrew Nebus, senior principal at SME. He's a trusted advisory at ASRC Federal. We've got Kirsten Silveria, senior process improvement specialist at the city of Fort Collins, Colorado. And Byron Caswell, president at Regent Solutions. And Jeff Newball, who's a security and compliance expert at Socrata. So this is going to be our public sector episode number 111. Check us out. If it's Friday, it's Disrupt TV. Any last words, Cindy? No, Ray. I mean, always great guests, and I will continue to be a, a loyal viewer and uh, hope to come on and co-host with you again. Next time Vala's not around, I'm happy to do it. <laughs> oh, we can bring Vala. Or when I'm not around, take, take over from me. So, well, hey, thanks for being a co-host. Thanks for being with us. And this is Disrupt TV. See you every Friday at 11 a.m. Pacific and 2 p.m. Eastern. Have a great Friday. Mm -hmm.